This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Island. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. Hey, everybody. This is Grant Stern. I'm here with the Miami Book Fair authors. I'm here with Paula Stone-Williams. She is the author of As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy. And she's going to be appearing in person at the Miami Book Fair on Saturday, November 20th at 4 p.m. in room 2106. Uh, It's an in-person event. You can find out more at Miami Book Fair on Twitter or go to www.miamibookfair.com. And you can get information on all the authors. There are in-person events. There are online events. Paula's event will be in person. She's going to be coming in from Colorado, right? That is correct. Yep. Paula, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. That's my pleasure to be here. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and then we'll start delving into the book? Sure. I was a successful, well-educated white American male. I was the CEO of a large religious nonprofit. I was the host of a national television show. I was the editor-at-large of a national magazine. I came out as transgender and promptly lost every single one of my jobs because in all 50 states of the U.S., you cannot be fired for being transgender. But in all 50, you can be fired if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. Good to know. Uh, So I lost pretty much everything eight years ago and have uh, built back a life in my new life that has actually been utterly marvelously wonderful. I'm the pastor of a church in Boulder County, Colorado. I'm a psychotherapist, and I speak all over the world on issues primarily related to gender equity. My first TED Talks had about four and a half million views. All of my TED Talks together have had, I guess, upwards of seven million views at this point which has just given me a pretty sizable uh, platform. And I enjoy um, having the opportunity to talk about issues related to gender inequity. I have that unique experience of having lived life from both sides. So I know what it's like both living as a man and as a woman. Well, you know, there's a hefty title to this book, (laughs) what you learned about the patriarchy and you know, yeah. you're, you're not even like, it's crazy because your story is unique, but you're not actually the first person that I know that has a similar story coming from the evangelical background and, and saying that like you came out and then your whole world at the time fell away. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that like? Oh, it was pretty devastating. I felt like people had one of two options. They could either think to themselves when I came out. Uh, oh, we we must not know much about what it means to be transgender because we certainly know Paul's character. And so we know that he is in fact an honorable human. So this should be something we study more deeply. That was one option. The other option would be to say, oh, we were wrong about Paul's character because obviously he he had serious character flaws because I mean, being transgender is an evil, terrible, awful thing. It did not occur to me that the majority of people would choose that latter option. Well, it doesn't occur to a lot of people, but it happens. And what is the patriarchy you're talking about in the title of this book? Because I think that's a word that, you know, it's a wonderful $9 word, but what does it really mean? What What is it? I think what it means when it's all said and done is that we are informed 
by the culture of which we are a part. None of us exist in a vacuum or come into the world in a vacuum. We come into a world that has been prepared for us. And in the Western world, uh, we in fact do come from a world that's been primarily dominated by men. And that would be true of all three of the desert religions. Uh, the desert religions began as religions of scarcity, understandably because they began in the desert. There's not enough to go around, so we gotta take care of our own. All three began, of course, as patriarchal religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. They're all the Abrahamic religions. And unfortunately, in their fundamentalist forms, they remain um, patriarchal and religions of scarcity, as creating enemies that don't exist, seeing not enough resources to go around, seeing not enough of God's love to go around. And they do remain uh, very strongly uh, male-driven. In the United States, of course, we're more affected by the fundamentalist form of Christianity than we are by the fundamentalist forms of Islam or Judaism. So I, I hate to shock you here, but it sounds like this book isn't just about uh, gender issues at all. Oh, I mean, no, this I is something that is. affects everybody, isn't it? I think it affects everybody. I mean, there are four chapters. There are two chapters focused very much on gender inequity. Two chapters focus very much on why religion behaves the way in which it does. Well, the rest of the book is my personal story, but I think that personal story is pretty pretty common with all of us who, who dare to accept the call onto what Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey. Well, it is a difficult journey. And what what sparked you to take that journey? Oh, I think really you kind of get to the point where you have no choice in life. You know, the first half of life, you're busy building resume virtues. You're slaying dragons, amassing fortunes, building kingdoms. You know, and then it comes to the point where that's just not working anymore. And you start working instead on eulogy virtues. You know, you have fewer friends, but deeper friendships. You no longer look outside yourself or your sense of who you are. You look deep inside your own soul. And you realize when you're called to something, you may actually no longer have a choice in the matter that your comfort is not what comes first, but instead a need to be true to the call. I'm not sure if that call is even necessarily religious in nature. I think it's just a deep internal sense that we're called to something greater than the life we were living. So, I mean, how did you work on rebuilding your external life after you started working on your internal life? Because as you mentioned at the the top of our interview, you know, you had many, many different hats that you were wearing, many different titles. And overnight, it was pretty much gone. Yeah, I was one of the national leaders of our denomination, 6,000 churches. And I probably knew five, 6,000 people by name. A post-transition, or actually just post-coming out even before I transitioned, I've had a total of uh, three substantive conversations with any of those five or 6,000 people. On the other hand, among my non-evangelical friends, I've not lost any, so you can kind of make of that what you will. But truth be told, I brought my male entitlement with me. I mean, I know how to take an opportunity and turn it into something uh, more than just that one single opportunity. And that, that stuff I think you learn uh, as a white male in the United States, if you have a good education, a good uh, background that actually puts you in a position of power from the time you were a little tiny thing. And so in my case, I think I just was able to leverage some of the, that first TED Talk opportunity that came to me. Uh, you know, I had the capacity to leverage that because I'd had decades of knowing how to leverage opportunities that came my way. Most cis women don't have that same opportunity. 
You know, I, I agree with you entirely because I know the opportunities that I have and I know that all those opportunities aren't simply because of who I am sometimes, although mm -hmm. I took a very different path than most people in my position, uh, certainly. Uh, so, I mean, how do you, do you ever like face resentment from people that say, well, geez, you know, you had it good before and here you are leveraging opportunities again. Do you, do you ever face mm -hmm. resentment like that? And, and how do you cope with that? And what do you say to that person? Oh, I sure do. Um, and I, I accept the reality of it. Uh, sometimes it comes from cis women who seem to think that all oh, transgender women want to try to um, step into the space of cis women. But I, you know, even there, I always say to them, I, I don't claim a cis experience. I mean, I come from the borderlands between genders. I come from the liminal space between genders. And I, I acknowledge the reality of that. But I also am in a unique position to be able to speak on behalf of the LGBTQ plus population and in a very unique position to be able to help men understand some things about their own privilege they may not hear from someone else. Explain you know, from those my very things, first TED, please. Well, I think in my first TED talk, I have heard from women on all seven continents, including Antarctica, thanking me for validating their experience. But yeah, one of the biggest things that I wish I could say to every guy, certainly I wish I could go back and say to Paul is, just assume a woman knows what she's talking about and treat her accordingly. It is interesting to me that as a woman, I am not respected for my aggregate body of work. I am only respected for the very narrow reason that the men in the room seem to think I'm qualified and therefore in the room. You know, I feel like I need to walk around with my CV uh, just to be able to indicate that, yeah, I actually know stuff. I was in a meeting just a couple of weeks ago in which uh, finally, toward the end of the meeting, after I had tried to suggest that maybe I had some information on the subject, one very kind man, which was nice, man said, hey, you know, we keep tossing this around, but actually, we actually have the person in the room who actually wrote the book on this subject. And everybody's like, you're kidding, said, no, no, she actually wrote a book on this subject like nine years ago. And so Paula, why don't you tell us what, what you think about this? I mean, it, it was, it's so aggravating to me because yes, literally I wrote a book on that subject. But as a guy, you come into the room, people assume you know what you're talking about. As a woman, it is simply not that way. You know, there's a lot of cultural factors that influence how people behave in this way. But explain to me the evangelical experience because you were on the other side of the table. Um, mm -hmm. You know, did you ever do that when you were, before you transitioned? Do you believe that you did that to some women? Oh my goodness, yeah. I mean, men interrupt women twice as often as they interrupt other men. And I think that's the thing I realized I did the most. I would interrupt if they weren't grabbing the platform quickly enough or speaking quickly enough, not realizing that men are encouraged to speak quickly. Women basically are taught, you don't speak up until you have all your ducks in a row and you can say quickly and succinctly what you need to say because you're gonna be interrupted once you start saying it. And I know that I was one of the interrupters. I mean, you know, I always say I have to live a long time because I got a lot I have to make up for. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes that's actually the case. It just is. And, uh, it just you know, is. 
Hey, just, I mean, people is. who recognize that uh, are certainly much better off, you know, especially at heart. And I want to throw the, the floor open to questions because I see that we have a, a, a decent listenership here. If anybody has a question, please raise your hand and I will bring you up onto the stage. So uh, you're coming here. Is this going to be your first trip to Miami? Oh, no, I've been to Miami. I've, I've flown over two and a half million miles with oh, my sure. particular okay. airline of choice. So, <laughs> yeah, I get all over the place. Well, uh, you know, so what do you think about uh, coming here for the book fair in person, you know, now that the pandemic looks like it's starting to fade away? I mean, I just want to get your personal take on this because, I mean, so many people have takes about Florida and our next guest is the Florida expert. Um, not that I'm not because I'm I'm a Florida man, too, but this guy wrote the book. So, you know, that it's like, OK, well, I have go. to say he wrote the book. Um, but what do you make of Florida from from afar? Because I'm just curious. <laughs> well, it is an interesting world in which we live right now. Um, and I know that there are pockets in Florida that are very liberal and pockets that are very conservative. And of course, we know the panhandle has always been pretty conservative. And your neck of the woods has always been relatively liberal. I mean, you know, maybe not so much, with, let's say, the Cuban population, but other parts of it. M most New Yorkers who head down to the East Coast are certainly very liberal, and there are plenty of those there. But right now, it would seem that um, there's quite a divide in your own state that is a reflection of the divide in the entire nation. Unlike Colorado, where I live, that we definitely have made that shift to becoming a blue state. And it makes it a little bit easier, particularly here in Boulder County. Oh, yes. Boulder is rather a blue, it's always been a blue state when Colorado wasn't. <laughs> always, always was. And now the whole state reflects us a little bit more than it once did. I lived in New York for 35 years. So for me, uh, Florida was, you know, a second home because it is for all New Yorkers. Sure. And so it's been fascinating to watch what's happened over the last few years in Florida. And I want to remind everybody that's listening and, of course, our uh, recorded podcast listeners down the road that the Miami Book Fair is happening from November 14th through the 30, uh, 21st on Miami-Dade College's Wolfson campus. And you can find out more about the book fair at www.miamibookfair.com or you can follow them on Twitter at Miami Book Fair since we're here on Twitter spaces. So can you share an anecdote from your book that illustrates in pretty stark terms some of the things that we've talked about this evening? Oh, yeah. Probably the very first time I ever flew as Paula, I was flying from Denver to Charlotte. I got on the plane. There was stuff in my seat. I picked it up, put my stuff down, and a guy said, that's my stuff. I said, okay, but it's in my seat. So I'll be happy to pick, hold it for you till you find your seat. He said, lady, that is my seat. I said, actually, it's not. It's my seat, 1D. But like I said, I'll hold your stuff till you find your seat. He said, lady, I don't know what I need to tell you. That is my seat. I said, yeah, actually, it's not. It's my seat, 1D. But like I said, I'll hold it until you find your stuff. At which point the guy behind me said, lady, would you take your effing argument elsewhere so I can get in the plane? I was utterly stunned. I can tell you exactly what would have happened when I was a guy. I would have said, excuse me, I believe that's my seat. And immediately the guy would have looked at his boarding pass mm, and realized yeah. I was right. I know that because it happened scores of times. And so that was a markedly different experience than what I had in the past. So I'm going to take a, a question from one of our listeners here. Her name is Amanda Finley. She is a repeat listener. 
Amanda, thank you for joining yes. us. Hey, Grant. Paula, I am so delighted to have come across this space. There is just a lot to identify with coming from a, a very conservative background. Um, one thing that I, I struggle with, and I'm cishet, so I certainly do not identify with that struggle. I don't know your struggle, but coming from that conservative background, how, how do you go about the work of anything that resembles advocacy when we're talking about your past? This is so hard for me to rectify sometimes. Thank you. Yeah, I think I, I try to take it, not not personally, but to take it from a kind of a macro view. You know, the sociobiologist uh, E.O. Wilson says that we are the only one of the nine tribal species that has somehow evolved to believe that an enemy is necessary for the tribe to survive. And where no enemy exists, we create one. And so I recognize that in the evangelical community, which has a lot of power in your state, again, particularly um, in the northern part of the state, uh, but in that world, their current enemy of choice has been the LGBTQ plus population and those who support a woman's right to choose. And after marriage equality, they made a shift from the LGB part of that equation to the T part. Uh, you did not see the opposition to trans folks 10 or 15 years ago that you see right now. And you take a look at the 17 laws that have been passed in seven states, the over 200 currently pending that take away the rights of trans kids who's driving those laws. It's actually not Republicans. 61% of Republicans think trans people should have the same rights as everybody else. So who's driving it? It's actually evangelical Christians, 84% of whom believe that gender is immutably determined at birth, 66% of whom believe that we already have given too many civil rights to trans people, and yet only 25% of whom will actually know someone who's out as a trans person. So when you take a look at that whole, you know, from a larger picture, creating enemies that don't exist, you just realize that, you know, it's not personal, but it's just right now we're the enemy of choice. I can handle that. I just feel really badly for the kids who can't, all those trans kids. Well, Paula, I really appreciate you uh, hanging in there through our technical difficulties. And it's just been a pleasure chatting with you. I hope that I can make it uh, to your appearance at the book fair, which is going to be on November 20th uh, at Miami-Dade College, room 2106. Find your scheduling information at www.miamibookfair.com or hop on to at Miami Book Fair on Twitter and you will see everything you need to know about the book fair. Paula, can you tell our listeners where they can find you both on Twitter because you're on there right now and also your website and anything else you need to share with our listeners to find your new book? Yeah, on Twitter, it's at Paula. Paula S. Williams, too. And you can find all of my stuff at paulastonewilliams.com. You can find my book, As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned, at your local independent bookstore. Much prefer that you purchase the book there. Paula, thank you so much for joining me on Spaces tonight. Oh, it's been a pleasure being with you. Thank you so much. Have a great night. You too. So, hey, everybody, I'm uh, hoping that Craig Pittman got the message and he's here and waiting and ready for us. Uh, it may take a couple of minutes because we ran a little bit late with our first guest, the wonderful, wonderful and amazing Paula Stone Williams, who has some incredible insight, uh, both on gender issues, but on our society uh, in general. And here comes Craig Pittman. 
He is the author of the amazing book, The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife. Craig, it's so nice to talk with you again. Good talking to you, Grant. How are you doing? Great, great. Uh, how are you? How's Tampa? Uh, oh, I'm okay. I made it through Monday. That's a big accomplishment around here. <laughs> but Tuesday's not over yet. Yeah, never know. Tuesday's not over. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a copy of your wonderful new book here, but where's your copy? I see Oh Florida in the background. Are where's you cross-promoting? It's right here, but you know, yeah. And what's great is I can sometimes substitute it for my own face um, <laughs> on Zoom calls. But I don't want to be here. <laughs> so, whose idea was it to to put your face onto the cover of this one? Well, uh, that's a uh, the cartoon is by Andy Marlett, who uh, draws editorial cartoons for the Pensacola News Journal. And I went up there to do a, a presentation about Oh Florida at their Foo Foo Festival, which I just I love saying that word, the Foo Foo Festival. And Andy drew a, a sketch of me that ran in the paper. And I, so when it came time to do the cover for this book, I thought, I wonder if there's a way Andy can adapt that cartoon. And so they contacted him and he was very enthusiastic about it. And I think it turned out great. I, I've already told him, I think it'll sell more copies of the book than my having my name on the, on the book. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, Andy's a, a phenomenal cartoonist and, and I know how good he is. Because I hear about the complaints he draws from the people that he <laughs> writes about. Yes. So, I mean, yes. you know, you're still, okay. So let's back up here. I didn't really introduce you to all of our, our amazing, amazing Twitter space listeners and hopefully podcast listeners, but <laughs> uh, uh, tell your, uh, tell our audience a little bit about your professional career with the, the Tampa Bay times and as a journalist and where you're at now, right. With the Florida Phoenix. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, an, I'm that rare creature, that endangered species of Florida native. I'm, I was born in Pensacola, was raised there. I worked at the Pensacola News Journal for five years, three years at the Sarasota Herald Tribune, and then 30 years at the uh, at well, the St. Petersburg Times that became the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, and then uh, for 20 of those years, I was covering the environment for the paper, and uh, which honestly is the best beat in American journalism because. Number one, they pay to ride around in a boat now and again. But number two, you get to cover a lot of the weird, wacky stuff that goes on in Florida, like pythons battling alligators in the Everglades. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and, and so... Um, Why has that movie uh, never been made, by the way? I mean, there's Predator versus Alien, but not Python yeah. versus yeah, you know, the alligator. Yeah, series and everything. And they were, people keep just missing it. I and then what know. about the crocodiles? What are they up to? Yeah, well, the crocodiles and the alligators, this is the only place on earth where crocodiles and alligators live together in peace with each other, not with us, but, you know, with each other. <laughs> um, anyway, I got I got laid off last year by the Times in, in March, uh, which, you know, lots of newspapers are going through all, all sorts of problems. Uh, so I I've started, noticed. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I started uh, writing a weekly column for the Florida Phoenix and I freelance stories for uh, you know, Flamingo Magazine, Washington Post, Politico, uh, Scientific American, National Geographic, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and you know, I've, I've written six books. This is number six. It just came out in September. Um, and it's sort of a sequel to my big bestseller, Oh, Florida, um, in the sense that they both sort of celebrate Florida's glorious weirdness. Um, it's a collection of, of columns and stories I've written over the last 30 years, many of them for the Times some for other publications. And, um, you know, it starts off by talking about Florida's mermaid industry, because it's not just the mermaids at Wiki Springs, but there are mermaids in 
Pensacola and Fort, Fort Lauderdale and, you know, the Jacksonville area and that kind of stuff. How could I and have then, missed all those mermaids? I only knew about the Wikiwachi ones. Yes. Yeah. Well, the Wikiwatch ones are special because they're state employees. Florida is the only state that actually has mermaids on the state payroll, which Figures. Uh, has, has led to some interesting conversations about the use of taxpayer dollars to pay for waterproof lipstick and shell bras. But that's um, enough talking about the Surgeon General. Who? What else do the mermaids do? <laughs> um, uh, there's one There's one in particular I, who is one of my favorite interviews, a lady who she supervises the mermaids who perform at the rec bar in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. And she said, I'm, I'm 47. Thank God water lips. <laughs> <laughs> oh um, my gosh. And, and there was a guy uh, who actually makes a lot of money doing custom designed mermaid tails. Uh, it sells them for thousands of dollars each. And he, he calls himself the Mer Taylor. And He's he a was Mer Taylor. Okay. Springs. Yes. He was the, he was a wiki Springs merman, but he quit because of, and this is a phrase you would not hear in any other state, mermaid politics. Oh, of course. <laughs> so, so there's that story. There's a story about uh, nudists versus the Postal Service. They're fighting over their packages, so to speak. Um, okay, hold on, hold on. I'm going to put a pin in that one and we'll come back <laughs> to that. And I mean, there's always the the naked guy that answered his door when his house was on fire and then well, didn't sure. want to leave, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, is that the one who was cook making cookies on his George Foreman grill? Yeah, I believe I so. The, yes. yes. Yes, of course. I mean, doesn't everybody do that in Florida? Sure. Uh, well, okay, the, so, you know, I mean, look. The, we, there's a, and there's the love story about the most tattooed woman alive. I'm, I particularly like that one. So. Oh. Well, okay. <laughs> so I always like to mention that last word, alive. I think alive, right. So, I mean, we had this debate the last time you and I spoke on the original Only in Miami show. And the debate was... Uh, does Florida's public records law just expose the weirdness that everybody might have or, or is Florida just weirder? Florida's weirder. Okay. Cause, cause after we passed the government and the sunshine law, other States copied it. So there, we're not the only state with that open records law. There are other States that also have an open records law, but they're not producing the, the volume of weird stories that we are. You know, and and not every weird story is is based in the police logs anyway. You know, like I mentioned about the the pythons and the alligators, that's not a police story. That's a that's a Florida story. You know, um, um, Billy Corbin just tweeted today about a, a couple in Miami Shore, Miami Lakes, I'm sorry, who found a, a dead python in their stove. And, you know, <laughs> the way they found it, they smelled decomposing meat and discovered that when they turned the stove on, they killed a python. That's not a police story. That's a Florida story. Definitely, you know? definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. But, you know, I mean, there, to me, there's an element of this. And I'll tell you why. Because I, I do a lot of out-of-state stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, since the last time we had this debate, I've learned things. That's what I'm trying to say. What I've learned okay. is, is that Florida's law actually is kind of unique. And I'll tell you why. Because it's part of our state constitution. And everywhere else, it's not. Even though other states copied our sunshine law to say, well, you should mm -hmm. be able to get this access. They didn't go that extra step. And then in places, for example, like Maryland, right? Um, I was just reporting on a, a criminal justice story in Maryland. And after the, the attempt for a temporary uh, restraining order got denied and the court case over the criminal court case for not obeying it got denied, they remove everything from online access. 
You know, I feel like we don't appreciate how much online access we have to stuff here and how much mm -hmm. more is being uh, put out there. Yeah. So, well, and of course, the legislature is constantly trying to chip away make at this that. more like yes. those other states. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, on that vein, like, can you tell our listeners, like, what's the best thing you ever got from a Florida public records request? Um, well, I, <laughs> um, I would probably say the, um, uh, the, the, well, this is a, this is sort of a perverse thing, but I got a, I got a, a document from the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission that said, uh, on this date, I proceeded to blank Florida blank. And the rest of it was all redacted. And that was, that was the entire record. <laughs> okay. So I got the record, but you just, you couldn't read it because <laughs> it was all redacted, except it happened in Florida on this particular date. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now conversely, uh, there was a case involving Selby Botanical Gardens in Sarasota and uh, a guy who had smuggled an orchid through the Miami airport. He'd smuggled it in from Peru and taken it to Selby Gardens and gotten it named after him. Oh, and, Lord. Uh, okay. So this is a yeah. very famous orchid. Well, it's it's maybe the most famous orchid. And and having it named after him, somebody said, was tantamount to hanging a sign on his back saying, please come arrest me. Um, and uh, And so there was a grand jury investigation in Tampa and uh, I went to pull the case file involving this guy and, and Sylvie gardens and the defense attorneys had attached portions of the grand jury transcript, which is supposed to be secret. Those, to right. Those motion. are supposed to be secret entirely. They, they, they attached the tran portions of the transcript to their motions to the court. And so I got a lot of the grand jury transcript and I actually did a little dance of joy in the elevator going back down until I remembered that there were probably uh, cameras in the elevator and then I stopped dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that happening, man. I could see oh, it yeah. happening. Uh, there, there was one time I went to uh, the Miami-Dade uh, Criminal Justice Center, the Gerstein building, which looks mm -hmm. like a, a cross between a, a poured concrete uh, bombshell and like, like a medieval fortress. Uh, it's yeah. like every is that, is that where they have the voodoo squad that cleans up the headless chickens before the public arrives in the morning? Uh, I could imagine so. Yes, uh, <laughs> and and um, yeah. Like I, I go upstairs to the media room of all places, and there's a police officer sitting in the media room. And I went there to collect a video. They said, "Go to the media room, mm -hmm. and we'll give you the video." Like the guys here have cut the video, and they've got it for you. Mm -hmm. And so. You know, I walk in and I've got a camera rolling because I'm just showing, oh, well, hey, well, here we are going up to the courthouse to get this thing. You know, mm -hmm. maybe we need to be real. And the police officer gets out of the media room and says, you can't record in here. <laughs> and I'm like, it's the media. That's this like, is the media that's room. Like Dr. Strangelove. That's like Dr. Strangelove. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, just the weirdness, the weirdness. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, the mermaids are only part of the political weirdness. Let's, yes. let's talk <laughs> about some environmental stuff for a second while I got you here. Sure. Okay. So um, specifically in Florida, and this is a Florida issue for all you listeners that may not be in Florida. You just, um, just, you know, smoke them if you got them. Relax. <laughs> so what's the deal with all these highways to nowhere in North Florida that the legislature approved and they're all going to cut down like forest and natural land and all this stuff to build all these highways? What's the deal with that? Well, okay. So you have to understand the origin of this was the, the Senator, the Senate president at the time 
went to a meeting with a bunch of uh, uh, paving companies, paving contractors, and the Road Builders Association, and then came out of that meeting and said, I have a great idea. I'm going to sponsor this bill to build <laughs> build these three expensive toll roads that they think is a great idea. So that's where that started from. Um, and the governor was fine with it and signed off on it, and they rammed it through. And then, you know, the, all the places where the road were supposed to go, people were like, we don't want a road here. What What are you talking about? And, and um, so they backed off two of the three. There's one that's still on the books. And uh, I find it ironic that, you know, first the governor signed off on building the roads and then he signed off on not building the roads. So it's like, you know, he's like Billy Martin in the old, the old beer commercial. He feels strongly both ways. Um, <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> the, that's, uh, that's wild though. That's wild. I mean, it's just like, yeah. like to, I mean, three major highways. I mean, these things were what they're like each, like uh, 200 miles. Right. It, and it was, you know, well, and multi-billion billions of dollars. The local communities hadn't asked for them. The DOT didn't have them in their program for right. you know, their five-year program that they did. And this is and, all and to here's just the best part. Yeah. Here was the best part. There was one that would go all the way from Citrus County straight to the Georgia line. Yeah. And and because I'm a smart aleck, I called Georgia and I said, Did you know they're doing this? And they were like, You're doing what now? <laughs> they had no idea. <laughs> I called up the Georgia transportation people were like, We have we this is the first we're hearing of this. What are you talking about? I mean, for our listeners that are from outside of Florida, let me let me just throw this at you, okay? I don't think that there's any part of Florida that's more than a one-hour drive from the interstate highways, right? Yeah, it's pretty close, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they're just like, you know, I mean, these highways to nowhere really disturbed me. Um, it, it just passed and everybody was like, hey, everybody, we got a highway to nowhere. What happened? And 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 they're, they're toll roads, number yeah. one. And number two. Yeah. Florida already has more toll roads than any other state. Oh, wow. Rick Scott pushed them big time when he was governor. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, and and a lot of the toll roads that are being built these days, they're supposed to pass a financial test that shows they'll be able to pay for themselves within a certain amount of time. But nobody really pays any attention to that that rule. A lot of the ones that have been built will not, that <laughs> after they started construction, they revised, quote unquote, the studies to show that they wouldn't pay for themselves. But by then it was too late. They were already building them. Okay. So this is a book about Florida, man. Where's the corruption? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a long piece in there about a police shooting that led to rioting. How about that? Will that count? That does count. Um, that okay. is official uh, negligence. Which one? The grand jury report clearing it, clearing the police officer was, um, it based on stuff that we, when we investigated, we found it was like totally bogus. So, wow. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about this because we've got some listeners that, that definitely want to hear about this. Um, uh, the motorist's name was Tyron Lewis. Uh, he was driving a, a, a crack rental, a car that he had rented in exchange for, for crack. And he and his buddy were going a little fast. Police officer did not have their, you know, their radar gun or anything, but they estimated they were going too fast. Uh -oh. And stopped him in an intersection. And uh, one officer got in front of the car. And he, you know, even though the sun's in his eyes and he can only see silhouettes in the car, he pulls his gun. And then his partner stands behind the driver's side and racks her baton and smashes out the window behind his head wow. as an attention getter. And then he says, he says, 
the car moved forward and threw him up on the hood. And so he fired and shot the motorist, shot the driver. Oh, wow. So where did that happen? That was, that was in downtown St. Petersburg. It was, you know, 18th and 16th. And so, you know, rioting that night and then the grand jury comes back and clears the officer and more riots ensue. Uh, So uh, me and another reporter, we spent a year investigating this and we found that the grand jury report was just wrong. We actually tracked down the car and I sat in the driver's seat. We fired the same type of gun that the officer fired. We went over all the witness statements. We listened to the recordings of, the, of what happened and things like that. And um, uh, we went and met with the medical examiner finally and said, the grand jury report says you said this. And she said, that's not what I said at all. I didn't say anything like that. And specifically, she told us that probably he was turning the wheel as he looked back to see what was going on behind him with, with the baton. And that's when the car moved forward and he got shot in the arm. So Uh, initially, and then in the chest. So, and then we went and took that to the state attorney and the state attorney was like, what? (laughs) Which was, I never won a Pulitzer, but that was, I would say getting a what out of him. Like that was, that was, that's the peak of my journalism. (laughs) That's good, man. That's, that's very good. But they didn't reopen the investigation. You know, yeah, I feel the same way about getting Steve Bannon indicted. <laughs> that is a great public records request, by the way. <laughs> My request was the one to find out that I'd caused the investigation, but somebody else's request caused it because they were investigating my investigation. That's how I Of course. <laughs> That's how Florida works. Uh, yeah. You know. Well, now we know who watches The Watchmen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, that's – but but seriously, though, that's, that's a big issue here in Florida. Uh, just the interaction between police officers and citizens. Uh, it, there's a lot of negative ones. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, let's talk about – are you familiar with the, the saga of – Javier Ortiz and the Miami oh, police yeah. department. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did he make the book? Well, well, no, he did not. He did not. Cause and he's German like a Bosch, special category of German Florida Bosch man. is not in there either. This is more of a, this is more of a, uh, featurey kind of book. I mean, there's oh, some, there's some criminal court stuff in there. For instance, there's the story of the twins and the Pinellas County system who kept blaming each other for whenever one of them got arrested. You know, That's oh, solid. I didn't do it. it was, he did it. Yeah. <laughs> then, did it work? And, yeah, <laughs> uh, to some extent. I mean, they got really confused. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, and there's a there's a piece in there, a, a profile of maybe the most audacious con man I ever wrote about. Um, he actually, uh, while he was a fugitive, he went to see a judge in another state in Georgia and got the judge to marry him to his girlfriend in order to guarantee she'd continue along with him in, in silence. But what he didn't tell the judge, well, he didn't tell the judge he was a fugitive from justice. He didn't tell the judge that he was, uh, the check he handed him was not only not drawn in a real bank account, it wasn't a real check. He'd actually drawn the check <laughs> by hand. <laughs> and, and, and the third thing he didn't tell the judge is, oh, and by the way, I'm already married. So this is bigamy. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many wives is too many in Florida? Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all ask ourselves that like every day as Florida men? So hold on, before we go on, I would just want to tell everybody, please share the space, tell your friends, tweet it out, just say, hey, come on in. Uh, So Craig is going to be appearing at the Miami Book Fair uh, digitally on November 16th. It's available on demand at www.miamibookfair.com. If you're in Miami, uh, the Miami-Dade Book Fair is happening from November 14th through the 21st in person. The street fair is going to happen this year. 
And there's going to be a lot of in-person events, but you can find it all out at www.miamibookfair.com. And like I said, please share and let all your friends know to hop in the space. Uh, we've got another 10 minutes, then we're going to take some questions. And uh, well, I mean, Craig, come on, you know, like we could do this like every week, right? Sure. <laughs> the Florida man show. <laughs> the- I'm a Florida man yeah. just from the opposite end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Florida's grace covers us all. <laughs> it certainly does. Certainly does. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, one of the things that that I think people don't understand coming from outside of Florida is how regional it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what are there, seven regions, eight regions of the state? And I don't know. You tell and- me. I mean, I, I like I have my theory. I'll share my theory, okay? What's your theory? My theory is that, in essence, there are uh, one, two, three, four, five regions, okay? There's like okay. everything from like uh, – you know, uh, west of Jacksonville through and the Big Bend and the Panhandle and like north, you know, like Lake City, like that whole corridor of I-10, that's like old Florida. But Jacksonville is kind of the anchor of like East Florida, right? And that okay. goes down to like, you know, all the way down to Stewart, right? And then mm-hmm. you have like Central Florida, which is like Tampa, Orlando, that whole, the I-4 belt. And then yeah. you got Southwest and Miami-Dade. Mm-hmm. And that's your four, your big See, four, but I or think, big five, I big think, five. I think Orlando's its own region because of yeah. all the theme parks and it's, it's just different. It's just different. Okay. Um, and, and I would argue too, that Tallahassee deserves its own region separate from the panhandle just because that's where the legislature is. And that's where all the bureaucrats are. Is it because of the allergies? Well, maybe it that's a little be. bit of it. it they're, they're, uh, they're allergic to the sunshine law. Is that what you mean? <laughs> oh, well, that we could talk about all day. We will get to that. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, but anyway, so 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 you've got all that. And and I mean, and the people who tell you that, oh, the secret of Florida is North Florida is South and South Florida is the North. That's not true either, because there are places in LaBelle where you can go in and order a grits and they'll, they'll serve them to you. So it's it's. You hey, know, I had grits uh, on Monday and they were yeah. pretty good. And, yeah. you know, Miami <laughs> was a place before <laughs> El Miami arrived, you know, I, and I kind of grew up in the transition from the two. And, you well, know, and so and so, there, you know, there's it, not just regions of, of geography, there are regions of time. Oh, yeah. There too. But I mean, I think the geography like, you know, for example, like somebody from like Bradenton. Or, well, okay, Bradenton's a bad example, I think. Somebody from like <laughs> Naples or uh, Fort Myers or, you know, like the, all those, you know, coastal communities in the Southwest, like they probably mm-hmm. all arrived in the last 20 years, you know? <laughs> uh, and they either arrived from Hialeah or Chicago, pretty much. Like, okay. <laughs> I mean, quite a lot of them. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, there, there are a lot like newer arrivals over there. I mean, the Southwest was just kind of like, Really, really sleepy before I-75 was, was finished, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and, you know, we haven't even talked about the Keys, which is its own Oh, region. well, the Keys are the Keys. I mean, it's an island yes. chain. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you, what's – okay, so let's talk about this because the Keys is really like a capital of weirdness. Yes. Um, and it was the original kind of capital of Florida when you think about it. It was the largest city. And and the one that had the most wealth Yeah. Well. 
I mean, I, didn't they have like a hundred thousand people living on Key West in like 1860 or something? It was, there were a lot. And, yeah. uh, you know, of course, a lot of them were making their money off of uh, attracting ships onto the rocks and then stripping them. Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> baby. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, what did you write about in the book from the Keys? Well, from the Keys, there's a big piece about the feral cats of North Key Largo. Okay. Um, the, ocean <laughs> reef, the Ocean Reef Club has the largest feral cat colony in Florida. And it's because they have this really big, well-funded program to bring the cats in and, and, and feed them and neuter them and, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, right across the street is the last habitat of the Key Largo wood rat. It's an endangered <laughs> oh species. Right. And so there's, they're still, they, they keep losing these rats. They're like, Hmm, I wonder if all the cats are coming over and getting them. Hmm. I and wonder the, the rich folks in the ocean reef club are like, no, no, no. It's, you know, we keep our cats well fed. There's no reason for them to go after the endangered rats. The upshot of it is they ended up breeding, doing captive breeding of the endangered rats, which, <laughs> and, and in, order, in order to keep this population alive. And if you ever feel like you've been given a bad job, just remember this. Somebody had to watch the rats breeding <laughs> because they, there's a possibility they could injure or kill each other. So, you know, on, on, on a particular Mother's Day, somebody was watching, you know, <laughs> watching a rat <laughs> breed, watching two rats breeding and, you know, and taking notes. And so they, they produced all these captive rats and turned them loose in North Key Largo, and they just started getting picked off one by one, you know, by owls and raccoons and so forth, because nobody had trained the captive rats how to avoid predators. <laughs> oh, my God. But they had one left, one that was still, its little satellite transmitter was still beeping. They said, okay, there's one that's managed to avoid all the predators, and it's it's the only one. Let's go out and find it and see if we can figure out how it has adapted to the wild better than the others did. So a biologist went out to North Key Largo and went looking for this, this, uh, you know, the beeping transmitter, thinking the rat would be attached to it, and instead came face to face with a python, <laughs> which had swallowed the rat and the transmitter both. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and that was the first sighting of pythons in the Keys. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, there you go. I mean, that's a Florida story, and it has nothing to do with the police log. <laughs> that is science, baby. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Florida science. It's the circle of life. <laughs> the circle of life. Exactly. It's got everything <laughs> Florida. Florida. It's got yes. <laughs> rich people, rat Cats. breeding, <laughs> feral cat colonies, uh, a python, and a major scientific discovery. All the same. And I haven't even mentioned the the nuclear missile silo that was there. <laughs> Where in, in, the, the, in, in Ocean in Reef the or in, in, uh, in, the, in, Ocean, no, in uh, Everglades, right? Right. Well, yeah. it's the it's the Crocodile Lake National Wildlife Refuge, and uh, yeah, yeah, and that's and that's a when favorite. They, when they bought that, pro when the feds bought that property, they discovered that not only was there a nuclear missile silo out there built, you know, because of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but also uh, there was a very elaborate uh, uh, cockfighting ring that had been <laughs> built out there, adjacent to a police gun range. How those two existed at the same time, I'm not sure. You know, you, wait, you, you say that, but I just have to share a story of my uh, wild youth days in Atlanta. I met this guy uh, while I was working at a bar in Buckhead. 
And, and he said, oh, you want a nice watch like this? I'll take you to the store where they do them. I'm like, huh? And so he, you know, takes me down to five points and we walk around the corner and he says, okay, here's the store. And it's this nondescript storefront where they are stamping watches. <laughs> and across the street from this storefront was the police station. Of course. <laughs> right across the street. I was like, what in the world is going on? But Florida is filled with crazy stuff like that. I yeah. mean, how many Centeros oh, yeah. do you have in this book? <laughs> Actually, one of, that's one of my favorite uh, stories because uh, the city of Hialeah wrote a law that discriminated against Santeria and lost a very important Supreme Court precedent yes. over that. Yes, they did. Uh, yes, for they for did. violating the First Amendment. <laughs> and that's why they never prosecuted the people who snuck in the uh, giant African land snails because of that case. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the religious cult that snuck in the giant African land snails. There's always some exotic creature involved. There has and, to be. Right. Well, yeah. you know, the giant African land snails that are big as your hand. And, uh, and, and people brought them in because they thought that drinking their mucus would make them healthy. And it actually had the opposite effect. Oh, <laughs> so they all wound up in the ER. So it was like the original the ivermectin. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's how the, that's how the authorities found out that giant African land sales were back in Florida. So, um, <laughs> but, but my favorite story of this is one woman who's known as the godfather of this particular you know, godmother. You mean La Mandrina. Yes, she put some under her dress and got on a plane in Nigeria and flew to flew to Miami. And I just picture the guy sitting in the seat next to her looking over and going, ma'am, did you know your dress is slowly undulating back and forth? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Um, boy, there are some weird stories in this state, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> it never stops. It never stops. I mean, I, I do a weekly author newsletter called oh florida the newsletter oh and every okay. week i count down the five the top five oh florida stories and it's always a hard decision picking which one which of the five i'm going to use you know which ones i'll do for for five i got to limit it to five and i i can't go beyond that but it's tough Some it is tough. Really tough it, it is tough <laughs> I, i'm hearing a little feedback in there are you uh you have a speaker open? Okay, there we go. I don't know. Something was happening with our connection. So, hey, everybody, before we go on, I just want to let you know uh, you're listening to Craig Pittman. He is the author of The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife. He's going to be appearing digitally this year at the Miami Book Fair, uh, which means you can find them at Miami Book Fair on Twitter and go to www.miamibookfair.com to find out more information about this year's fair, which is happening from November 14th through the 21st. Craig will be appearing on demand starting <laughs> on November 16th, which is Tuesday. And he's going to be in a panel discussion with some other authors who, um, unlike me, he's going to really freak out. Whereas I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> Jeez, Florida. <laughs> so uh, so please uh, take a minute to follow him. He's at Craig Times, at yeah. Craig Times on Twitter. And uh, we're going to take your questions in about five minutes, everybody. But before I, I hop off, share this uh, spaces. Tell all your friends to hop on for a few minutes. We've got like 10 minutes left. If you've got a question, start thinking about it. So, Craig, let's talk about Florida Records access, or as I like <laughs> to think of it, something that used to exist from the governor's office. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, we... 
we have this long tradition in Florida of, of uh, open records. It didn't used to be that way. It was a, a guy nope. named Emory Red, Red Cross who uh, who was a savvy enough politician. He invented his own nickname. His name is Emory Cross. And he said, I need a nickname so that people will remember my name at the ballot. I'll call myself Red, even though there was nothing red about him. And it, he heard that red. his colleagues in the state Senate were buying up land because they knew where I-75 was going to be built. And then they would they would make money off of it. And he said, well, that's not that's not right. And it he, he spent 10 years trying to get the Sunshine Law passed and finally, finally got it through. Uh, you know, the pork chop gang controlled the legislature back in the day. And when finally the Supreme Court changed the method of elections in Florida, that broke things open so that finally, you know, the more progressive elements from from the cities could take over. So uh, that's why it finally passed in the in the uh, during the Ruben Askew administration and Askew signed off on it. But I mean, almost immediately, legislators tried chipping away at it, putting in exemptions and things like that. And they just have continued to today. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a, a big issue. It affects you as an as a journalist. Um, I would say yeah. as an author too, right? I mean, oh yeah, they're really yeah. trying to. And as uh, a citizen. <laughs> oh, of course, all of us as citizens. Yeah. But I mean, like, yeah. you know, I mean, it, like for me, it's like, oh man, it's so personal. You know, like I'm on the phone with a, a lawyer like for an hour every day, just trying to get public records access from the state mm -hmm. because of a lawsuit. Um, but you know. Like for, for everybody who's listening and thinking of these great questions you're going to ask, um, it's, it's not as like, well, you're not doing it like every day, like, like we are, but explain yeah, how yeah. citizens lose when governments are less transparent. Well, I mean, the whole point of the sunshine law is we as taxpayers are paying for the government to do its job. The government officials are working for us as voters. We should know how they're spending our money. We should, we should be able to judge what kind of job they're doing. So every time they do things in secret behind closed doors, they're shutting out their bosses. They're shutting out the people who are not who the people who are paying for their salaries. And that's not right. We should have full access to everything they do, every discussion they have, all of the memos they exchange. And, you know, it's our right as their as as the people who are footing their bill and as their bosses as voters to see what they're doing. That's just common sense to me. Um, I mean, let's talk about the contrast between the the lovely words on paper and the reality here, right? Um, there's great court decisions with maxims like news delayed is news denied mm -hmm. and records access is virtually unfettered. <laughs> they sound great, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, what what's the longest it's taken for you to get a public record that you're reporting on and you, oh, did you have to sue? Uh, we didn't have to sue, but it, I'd say it took about a year. It took a year. A year? Um, That's fast. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I was pretty proud. No, um, uh, usually. No, seriously. I just got a response to a records request from July 9th of 2020. They just wrote me back to say, mm -hmm. we don't understand what you mean by send uh, the, us the invoice and complete the request. <laughs> Please clarify that. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a lot of delaying tactics that are involved. And and the other thing, too, is um, it's not just that you have, have access to it so you can watch what's going on, but also so that you can interact with the people making the, these big decisions. And I mentioned that only because 
early in the governor's the, the our current governor's administration, he made he held that cabinet meeting over in Israel. Right. And he said, you know, and his office said, oh, it's OK. It's under the Sunshine Law. It's OK because you could watch it online. That's not Sunshine Law access. That's not the ability to question the people in charge and, you know, raise your hand and say, I, you know, I object or something like that. That's the kind of access you want. Not, oh, I can only watch. I can watch it online. That's not that's not right. But that's been sort of the the story of this administration in particular and, you know, in the Scott administration, too, of trying to hide things, trying to not tell you in Scott's case, not tell you where the governor's going. Remember, he got he sold the state plane and was flying around on his own plane. So like nobody knew where he was. was. Yeah, because he didn't have to say no. And and it turned out at one point he was gone to Texas for a free hunting trip from uh, from the sugar growers. Oh, well, a bunch of GOP legislators were doing that. Hey, I mean, those guys do have a lot of money. Come on, bro. Yeah. (laughs) If you need if you need a good campaign donation, I I don't think you want to talk to poor people, right? No, no, definitely not. So um, um, not to change the subject, but I just want to mention that in addition to the newsletter. Yes. Uh, I, have a, I have a weekly podcast. Oh, what's called, it called? Welcome to Florida or okay. WTF for short. Um, <laughs> where uh, uh, Chad Scott and I talk to, uh, talk to different people about Florida. And our, our goal is, you know, 900 new people move to Florida every day. Nobody tells them what they've gotten into. So we're trying to educate. So you're trying to get all 900 of them, and yeah, yeah, we're like, come, come over. It's you know, it's like it's like Tommy Lee Jones holding up the the uh, neuralizer and saying, "Please look here." Except we're (laughs) instead of blanking your memory out, we're trying to tell you things that you need to know. So we've done interviews with uh, you know a python uh, hunter, uh, an iguana trapper, a um, uh, a guy who lived in the villages and then wrote about it, wrote wrote the book about the villages. Um, uh, cockroach expert, uh, shark biologist, uh, an expert on sinkholes. Uh, we've done interviews with Carl Hyacin and uh, uh, Clyde Butcher. We're doing Tim Dorsey. Uh, he's our next one that we're interviewing on Thursday. So it, check it out if you had. It's on. It's on all your favorite platforms to to look at. So yeah, uh, you know, I'll tell you what. Um, it sounds like the Coral Castle of podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. A labor of love is what you a need. A labor right? of love. Exactly. Yes. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you guys have the Dolly Museum up there. We've got the Coral Castle. I've been to the Coral Castle. I enjoyed the Coral Castle. It's wonderful. I like that, I like that tour. Uh, you know. Well, you I know, like pushing pushing big big uh, <laughs> slabs of limestone around yeah, <laughs> on our yeah. little T-axle. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a wild place. Uh, it's like almost unbelievable, but it exists. But the best mm-hmm. part about it is straight up, the guy intended it to be a tourist attraction. Like he <laughs> built it to be a tourist attraction. That is the best part. This is like Disneyland on like three acres. But it is something else. I mean, it is a Florida story. Except it's made out of rock instead of. (laughs) Yes, except it's all just made out of limestone. Skipped all the rest, but (laughs) solid. (laughs) Very solid. (laughs) So, Craig, uh, tell our listeners, where where can they find your website, your Twitter handles, any other handles, websites, books? Just throw it all Um, out there for our listeners because we're going to take some questions. Hold on, hold on. 
Go ahead. Com is my website. Um, uh, Twitter, as you mentioned, is at Craig Times. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Craig Pittman 78. Um, because that's the year I graduated high school. Uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, I've got the weekly author newsletter, which people get via email and uh, the podcast. Welcome to Florida. Uh, my books are available just about anywhere you find books. Uh, books and books has them. I know. I know for sure. And uh, uh, if you order through Tombolo Books, which is my hometown independent bookstore, uh, I can give you autographed copies. They, they'll call me up and say, hey, come over and sign a bunch more. And I'll go over there and sign them. I so that yesterday. I would say you should tweet at Craig Times if you want to get one of those special autographed books. That's a great <laughs> idea. Highly recommend it there for everybody. Um, so let's take great some questions. <laughs> Do we have any questions here from the audience? Speak up. Raise your hand. This is your moment in the sun. I hope you've been thinking about these questions for a while. I'll give you one minute to think about it. I've got to get like that Jeopardy music. Just, oh, wait, I've got a request. <laughs> Add a speaker. There you go. Hello. Hello. We can hear you. Hey, um, I have a two questions um what if you have one um what is the weirdest political story that you've ever heard of relating to florida that maybe made your jaw drop um and the second one is sometimes when we make news nationally um Sometimes even we make it onto um, like the late night talk shows and stuff. Am I the only one that sometimes can laugh it off and be like, yep, that's us. That's Florida. And then sometimes I just want to cringe and just say, oh, boy, that is. Um, yep, that's that's Florida. <laughs> so those are my two questions. Those are excellent questions. Um, all right. For your first one. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Florida produces lots of great political, weird political stories. Um uh, you know, the, my favorite governor is probably, uh, Sidney Katz, who used to campaign with a pair of, uh, six shooters on his hip because he claimed the Catholic church was out to get him. Uh, oh and, uh, and, uh, uh, there was the, the Florida congressman, uh, who was arrested as part of the abscam deal who said that, oh, mm -hmm. when they got him on videotape stuffing money in his pockets, that was just him collecting evidence for his own investigation. Of course. Um, <laughs> Um, Wait, is that Gatesgate? Um, <laughs> uh, but my favorite one, I think, is the the mayor of Cedar Key. Uh, in 1890, he hired a thug as his town marshal, and the two of them walked around, order with shotguns, ordering people to do crazy things just for their own amusement. Like, hey, you two guys headbutt each other. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> and people were scared of them. They they couldn't they couldn't depose the the mayor. Because his father was a prominent state official, the the town marshal, like I said, was a was a thug with a gun. Does that sound familiar? And this woman, and I don't, we don't know her name. Her name has been lost to history. Wrote a letter to President Benjamin Harrison and said, "You have to help us. We are under a reign of terror." Wow. And the New York Times started yes. sent a reporter and actually started running stories. Cedar Key reign of terror continues. And um, about that time, the mayor and his thuggish town marshal beat up the keeper of the customs house in cedar key who is a federal employee and so president harrison dispatched a navy cutter to cedar key to arrest the mayor and he nice. fled 
of course. And so Cedar Key is the only city in America that underwent a military coup. <laughs> and why they don't have an annual celebration of this, I don't know. You know, brain of terror days. Everybody come down and see the reenactment of the Navy landing. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. I have a guest coming on later this week on Thursday evening at seven o'clock. And, and the subject of this, I have to read this to you. Cause when you hear this, you're going to be like, what? I think, I think it's certainly the first uh, amphibious am invasion of America by the Navy. That's for sure. <laughs> but wait until you hear about this guest who is coming up. Uh, on Thursday. I mean, this is really like this blew my mind to get a copy of this book uh, in advance. Um, so his his name is David Zucchino, and he wrote a book uh, entitled Women Wilmington's Lie. Okay, the murderous okay. coup of 1896 and the rise of, of white supremacy. This is the winner of the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction, and I'm just going to read the. The description here, this brutal okay. insurrection is a rare instance of a violent overthrow <clears throat> of an elected government in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It halted gains made by blacks and restored racism as official government policy, cementing the rule of law, a uh, uh, white rule of law, a uh, white rule for another half century. It was not a race riot as the evidence of November 1898 came to be known, but rather a racially motivated rebellion launched by white supremacists. Wow. And where was that? That was in Wilmington, North Carolina. Oh. This is a, uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm so excited to actually like bring this guy on the the spaces. I mean, I'm, I'm inviting you to come back and listen because this is like <laughs> um, David Zucchino, Wilmington's lie. Um you know, like we're, we're living in an unusual era where, you know, these incidents of the past, I think, have a lot more relevancy, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Now, let me answer the rest of the, the second question. Go ahead. Um, uh, which is I can I have I have friends like you. They're, they're Florida natives who every time they turn on the TV and see a big story, they go, oh, please don't be Florida. Please don't be Florida. And of course, it's it's always Florida that, you know, big stories. Inevitably, there's always a Florida angle on there somewhere like even even silly ones you know the woman who got arrested for trying to bring an emotional support uh peacock on board a plane in new jersey the peacock was from miami so you know there's always that florida angle but i say you should let your florida freak flag fly you should be proud of that fact proud of the, that we're weird because i contend that the same energy and creativity that goes into doing wacky stuff also leads to us doing things that influence the rest of the country, whether they like it or not, whether they know about it or not, you know, um, I'm just happy about that. And I, I, you know, why, why would you want to live somewhere where every day the news is the same day after day, you know, go to one of those square States out West for that, but, but <laughs> you know, go to Nebraska, but if you want to live in a place where every day you open the paper or you turn on the news and you go, wow, a, a guy punched a swan today you're in the right place. <laughs> you know? You're in the most interesting state and you should be very proud of that. <laughs> yes. Uh, the interesting level is extremely high here. There's no you doubt. Know, we call ourselves the sunshine state, but we're not really, we actually get more rain than Seattle does on an annual basis. Yes. But that's if, you, true. if we changed our nickname to the most interesting state, I think we can back that up. <laughs> I think we can, 
I think that one's that one's much more accurate. So I'm gonna let uh, one more speaker take the stage for a minute, and then we're gonna okay. sign off. Uh, Amanda. So yeah, uh, everybody, you can follow at Miami Book Fair on Twitter. You go to www.miamibookfair.com. Uh, Craig's uh, episode is going to be appearing on demand on November 16th. That's Tuesday. And the book is The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife. Check it out. Oh, it looks so good up there. So, uh, Amanda, you got a quick question. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I have to know, Craig, I'm cry laughing. What's your best manatee story? Manatee as in the animal or as in the uh, county? <laughs> Let's oh, go with dear, that. either. Oh, my gosh. I <laughs> oh, you have choices. Yeah. Well, um, so Manatee County, this is I, this actually combines both. Manatee County was going to have their their 500th year celebration because they claim that DeSoto, Hernando DeSoto landed there. And um, and they discovered, oh, wait, we don't have any actual manatees. The county that's named for a manatee, we don't have any manatees. And so they wrote to a guy who had manatees in Miami at the, uh, and, and said, can you help us out? And he said, well, we, I just had one born in captivity. I and I can let you have that one. And so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my details mixed up. He said, I have one, I have one here. I can, I can bring to you. So he brought over one called lady who was pregnant at the time. Ah. And he put lady on display. And while she was there, she gave birth to <laughs> a, a young manatee. Well, the state got all bent out of shape and said, you have a permit from one manatee. Now you have two. What are you going to do about it? You need to release one of them into the wild. And he said, I can't do that. It's a baby. I can't turn it back loose without its mother. Oh my so gosh. Got a deal. I know. Family so separation policy, huh? Yes. So they worked out a deal where he would leave, he would give the baby to Manatee County to be their manatee. And then he took the mother back home to Miami and, and, the baby grew up to be Snooty the manatee, which they put on display there for for almost seventy years. Wow! And he, was the, he was the he was the longest lived manatee in captivity. He did tricks that he had learned as a baby, you know, the, the, where you know he could turn over on command and you know take a carrot and things like that. And uh, you know, he was this very much beloved figure in Manatee County, and. Uh, uh, it's just it, people, all the prominent manatee biologists came to visit him to examine him and look at him and things like that. It's just, I just love that story. So that's a great and then, story. And then it ended, and of course, it ended in tragedy. He, the, you know, shortly after his 69th birthday celebration, he got his head stuck in a, a, a piece of the tank that was left on, on, unlatched and couldn't come out to, to surface to breathe air. And so he actually drowned. Oh my and gosh. The, I know. It's just, it's like, wow. <laughs> you know, and, and at one point the Audubon society started a drive to free him so he could breed because he, he hadn't at that point, he hadn't even seen any other manatees. And, and they tried this, they tried to, you know, to force manatee County to release their manatee and they wouldn't do it because, you know, it's like their, their St. Louis arch, their, you know, <laughs> their, <Yeah. laughs> their empire state building. They're like, no, that's, that's our symbol of Manatee County. <laughs> that is just uh, <laughs> so damn Florida, man. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Craig, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's sure. been a pleasure. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. Hang on for one sec. I'm going to wrap up the space. I want to chat with you there. So, hey, everybody, okay. one more time, uh, MiamiBookFair.com. That's your spot. Uh, follow them at Miami Book Fair on Twitter. And I'll see you tomorrow night at seven o'clock where we have very, very special guests. Les Standiford, who's doing Battle for the Big Top. Stephen Miro. Oh, hey, people calling me. Uh, <laughs> we'll have Les Standiford, who's doing Battle for the Big Top, uh, B.T. Barnum, James Bailey, John Ringling, and the death-defying saga of the American Circus, and Andrew Ross, the author of Sunbelt Blues, The Failure of American Housing. That's a great book. That's an awesome book. Yeah. So, I mean, it literally like everybody, like three nights a week and third, this Thursday special, just because we have such an amazing, amazing guest, David Zucchino with Wilmington's Lie. And uh, please tell all your friends, share these things. I'm going to be posting the next space pretty soon. So everybody can sign up for tomorrow night's spaces. And I hope you'll be listening tomorrow. Have a great, great night. Good night. Okay. And... Let me, okay, that's all done. Give me a second. Let me do that.